turn now in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. We're in chapter 4, no, chapter 5. Uh, about to complete 1 John, one more after this um, session. We're looking this morning at verses 16 and 17, but we'll begin reading with verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would be with us by your Holy Spirit, that you would grant us, O Lord, to understand your word, and that you might grant us, O Lord, to see the glory and the majesty of Jesus, our Savior, who makes prayer possible and who grants us through the knowledge of His Heavenly Father, You, our God, this great and wonderful privilege of prayer, including intercessory prayer. Father, we pray that You might be present with us to enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The prayer is a great privilege. Uh, We are given a definition of prayer in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, Question number 98, and it reads this way. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will. In the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. Now, there are a few provisos. Uh, Jesus Himself tells us to pray according to His will. John tells us in 1 John Chapter 5, in verse 14, this is the confidence which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Yet often we don't know exactly what is the will of God, and so we have the great blessing and privilege as adopted children of God of offering up our desires unto our Heavenly Father. The simplicity of this is often seen in the prayers of children. You don't get all tangled up in philosophical and theological machinations about how we might know the will of God. They just offer up their desires unto God. 
please God, bring me a new brother. The one I got socks me all the time in the face. Simple prayer, desire of a child's heart. Please help me in school. I need help in spelling, adding, history, geography, and writing. I don't need help in anything else. Dear God, do you have any helpers in heaven? I would like to be one of your helpers in heaven when I have summer vacation. Does she know what she's asking for? Or, dear God, I'm saying my prayers for me and my brother Billy because Billy is six months old and he can't do anything but sleep and wet his diapers. Now that's intercessory prayer. Among the many blessings and privileges that we have as children of God, adopted sons and daughters of God, is the blessing and the privilege of intercessory prayer. And in this text we have first uh, that wonderful privilege set before us to pray for a brother who finds himself in sin, to pray on behalf of one another. And then in addition to that wonderful blessing of intercessory prayer, we have this restricted prayer or this restriction on prayer, which is somewhat perplexing. First, we note, though, the blessings and privileges of intercessory prayer. Verse 16 says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. So here we have set before us by the Apostle John further encouragements that arise out of the possession of eternal life. When you are persuaded that you have eternal life, that you have communion with the God of the heavens and the earth, that you have a relationship with God as your heavenly Father, then you have spiritual confidence, and that spiritual confidence expresses itself in prayer. John tells us in verses 14 and 15, that when I have assurance of eternal life and confidence that I've come to know God, then I can pray and know that when I pray, God hears me. And not only that He hears me, but He also will answer my prayers. Last week we talked about uh, what some of those answers to prayer have been. I gave some examples in my own life and also in the life of this congregation. And it is a good thing for us to sometimes do some spiritual inventory and think about how God has answered our prayers. That is a great blessing. However, all of these blessings of prayer are not just personal in nature, that is, only confined to your own life, it is not just that you pray for yourself, but also that you might pray for others as well, for your brothers and your sisters in Christ. If we are anything as a body of believers, we are to be a praying community. We are to be a praying people. In fact, many of the old worship books 
you may know are called books of common prayer. That's what we are doing when we gather together on the Lord's Day. We are engaging in common prayer. Not private prayer. Common prayer. The whole service of worship is in a great, to a great extent an offering up unto God of our prayers. That's why we pray together in unison. We pray a common prayer. One that we share with one another. And that expresses itself in our prayers also for one another. For your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. The spiritual confidence that comes from knowing that you have eternal life not only opens up the door for prayers of petition unto your Heavenly Father for everything that you have need of and all the desires of your heart, but it also opens up the door for intercessory prayer on behalf of your brothers and your sisters in Christ. So John very naturally moves from a prayer life to intercessory prayer if anyone sees his brother or sister for that matter committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sin not leading to death. Thus, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to have a mutual concern and love for one another. And it is another way that that spiritual vital sign of love for and interest for and interest in the lives of our fellow believers manifests itself. One of those spiritual vital signs, one of those evidences that John gives us that we do possess eternal life, that we have come to know God, that we have communion and fellowship with God, is that we have a deep interest in and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we don't stand aloof from the body of Christ, but we pursue it and we pursue one another and we take advantage of the opportunities we have to share our common life with one another. And one of the ways that that expresses itself is in intercessory prayer. John writes in chapter 3, verse 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. This love for one another manifests itself in a mutual interest in each other's lives. And that's why we exhorted numerous times throughout the whole of the New Testament to be involved in one another's lives or to one another, one another. We are to be devoted to one another, edify one another, accept one another, admonish one another, greet one another with a holy kiss or a holy hug or a handshake or whatever it might be. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be forbearing one another. Forgiving one another. Being kind to one another. Teaching, admonishing one another. Comforting one another. Exhorting one another. Confessing our faults to one another. Being hospitable to one another. Having compassion on one another. And also praying for one another. 
One of the great blessings of spiritual confidence that arises out of the knowledge of and the experience of eternal life is the blessing of intercessory prayer. That we pray for one another in times of need and our Heavenly Father hears us. We lift one another up before the throne of grace. We bring each other, as it were, unto our Heavenly Father and lay our hearts before Him. This mutual love manifests itself in our care for one another when there are physical needs, when there is sickness, when there is injury, when there is deprivation. 1 John 3, 17-18 states, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. This love manifests itself also in our care for one another when there are not just physical needs, but when there are spiritual needs, discouragement, trial, or the practice of sin. What do you do when you see a brother caught up in the practice and the pursuit of sin? What do you do when you see a sister in Christ giving herself over to the practice of some sin? Here in verse 16 we are told, If anyone sees his brother committing sin, not leading to death, he shall ask. And God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. A more literal translation might be, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin. The verb to sin is... In the participial form, it is uh, equivalent to our English ing, that is sinning, present active practice of sinning, conveying the idea, here's someone who is caught in the, up in the pursuit of some sin that is destroying their lives. In other words, this is not some occasional sin or casual error or careless word spoken, but rather the continuous pursuit of a sinful lifestyle. John Calvin in his commentary remarks, it may be gathered from the context that it is not, as they say, a partial fall or a transgression of a single commandment, but apostasy by which men alienate themselves from God. What do you do when a brother or a sister in Christ falls into this pattern of sin, begins to drift away from the body of Christ by self-indulgence and self-neglect and spiritual carelessness. Well, of course, you ought to go to Him in love and speak to Him. Not speak about Him to someone else. Gossip. But speak to Him. That's what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 18. To go to a brother a sister in Christ, in love and compassion and tears, confront them with their sin. But even before you do that, there's something else that you ought to do. 
before you speak to Him, you ought to speak first to God about Him in intercessory prayer. This is the benefit and the blessing of intercessory prayer. God will hear our prayers and answer our prayers. John writes, He shall ask, and God shall for him give life. It's the power of intercessory prayer in the life of your brother or your sister in Christ who is in the midst of spiritual struggle, spiritual battle, and losing that battle. Do you realize what power we have in each other's lives through this blessing and means of intercessory prayer? One is struggling, one is faltering, one is failing, and the rest of us get on our knees and plead with our Heavenly Father and our God acts in the life of our brother and sister in Christ and He is preserved. I don't know about you, but that's a great comfort to me. I have the great hope that where it happened to me, you would all be on your knees pleading with your Heavenly Father for the sake of my soul. And God would hear your prayers. It's a blessing of intercessory prayer. Do you pray for one another? That is why we have prayer list. So you might have it in front of you. Carry it with you. Take it to your home. Use it as a guide to plead with your Heavenly Father for the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we have, in this day of technology, um, prayer emails that we can, with a click of a button, send out to everybody so they can know exactly what's happening and right away, immediately, run to the Heavenly Father and make the request known. And prayer groups that meet throughout the week. There are five men, two women right now. We ought to have ten men and ten women's prayer groups meet throughout the week. If you're not a part of one, I encourage you to be a part of one. If it's not one that meets when you can meet, start one. Intercessory prayer. The great blessing it is to the body of Christ. Now, secondly, then, there is also this, what I'm calling restricted prayer or prayer in sin, that presents to us uh, the idea or concept of the relative severity of sin. The latter part of verse 16 and also verse 17. Where John adds this proviso, perplexing proviso, there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Now here's a curious twist, is it not? This is one of the this is the downside of expository preaching. If you don't do it verse by verse, you can skip over stuff like this and go on your merry way. But here it is before us. John 
throws this wrench into the cog of the wheel of intercessory prayer and introduces these two categories of sin that we are to consider as we see a brother or a sister committing sin or falling into the pursuit of a sinful lifestyle that is destructive to them and perhaps to those around them as well, we are to pray. But first, we are to make a determination about the kind of sin that they are pursuing. We ask ourselves the question, did he or she, is he or she, committing a sin not leading to death? The answer is yes, then pray. God will save him from death by intercessory prayer. And secondly, did he or she, is he or she committing a sin leading to death? If so, then John does not prohibit intercessory prayer, but it appears that he does not advise it. He says, there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. So it seems that John introduces the idea that the efficacy of intercessory prayer in this case is doubtful to rescue him from death. Prayer is not forbidden in this case, but John says, I do not say that he should make request for this. Now, of course, um, this statement raises numerous questions, doesn't it? What particular sins does the Apostle John have in mind here? What kind of death is he speaking about? Spiritual death? Are we saving men from spiritual death or from physical death or from both? He speaks of two broad categories of sin. Sin not leading to death and sin leading to death. Literally, he speaks of a brother sinning a sin not unto death and of a sin unto death. What kind of sin is it that is not leading to death? After all, isn't it true that all sin leads to death? Has not the Apostle Paul told us in Romans 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death? Were not our first parents warned in the garden In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Does not Ezekiel the prophet warn us over and over again, the soul that sins, it shall surely die. Sin and death are inseparable, are they not? And yet John tells us that in some sense, not all sins are unto death. Now, for these reasons, of course, these verses have perplexed many commentators throughout the history of the church. And many who have preached this text have been perplexed by it as well, including myself. And several perspectives and interpretations 
understandings have been promoted, at least three of them. I'll give them all three to you for your consideration. First, there is the idea that what John has in mind is, as John Calvin previously quoted stated, he has in mind apostasy. That is, the negation of the faith. Apistis. The word pistis is the Greek word for faith. And so he says in his commentary, it may be gathered from the context that it is not, as they say, a partial fall or a transgression of a single commandment, but apostasy by which men wholly alienate themselves from God. In other words, this is what John has in mind earlier in Calvin's opinion when he says, they went out from us because they were not of us. And they went out from us that it might be known that they were not a part of us. So there are men who don't truly have a faith in Christ and who have now been exposed by their rebellion and they turn away from the gospel. They deny the Christian faith altogether, as did these false teachers who, uh, John says, deny that Jesus is the Christ who came in the flesh. And thus, if you conclude that that is the sin they are committing, they have committed the sin that is unto death, and thus it is doubtful that they will repent of their sin and turn again to Christ in faith. And so you may not pray for them. That's one option. The second option, and very closely related to it, is the idea that what John has in mind is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Perhaps you recall the Gospels, the Lord Jesus himself, while he was doing some great miracles, some of the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul, who is the king or the prince of demons. And thus they attributed... Uh, the work of the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of our Savior uh, to the devil himself. And Jesus then tells us in Mark 3, verses 28 and 29, that all sins may be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit uh, is unforgivable. Calvin also mentions this, as well as the evangelical Anglican expositor uh, John Stott, who says in his commentary, this sin committed by the Pharisees was deliberate, open-eyed rejection of known truth. They ascribed the mighty works of Jesus, evidently done by the Spirit of God, to the agency of Beelzebul. He says, it leads him inexorably into a state of incorrigible moral and spiritual obtuseness because he has willfully sinned against his own conscience. So some uh, choose that the sin which is leading unto death, for which you perhaps may not offer prayers, is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, there is the idea that what John has in mind when he speaks of a sin which is unto death is physical death and capital offenses. This view is suggested by the famous 18th century commentator, commentator Matthew Henry, 
although he suggests the other two possibilities as well. The idea would be then that John must have in mind sins which are also crimes, and in particular crimes which are considered capital offenses requiring the death penalty. Matthew Henry remarks in his commentary, there are sins which by righteous constitution are unto death or to a legal forfeiture of life such as we call capital crimes. So the interpretation in that case would be if you see a brother practicing some sin which is not criminal in nature and for which is no death penalty, pray for him that God will give him life. That is, that he will repent of his sin and his life will be preserved and that by our intercessory prayers we will secure life for him. The idea would then be then that a fellow professing, believing uh, Christian brother or sister is intentionally in the pursuit of some lifestyle which, if he continues to pursue, will certainly bring his death and demise. So you pray, and by the ministry of intercessory prayer, he is preserved. And then, according to this understanding, on the other hand, if you see a brother sinning a sin which is unto death, that is, physical death by capital punishment, then you may pray for his life to be spared, but it's not recommended, for the sentence of death may be what justice demands. That would be the rationale. Thus, on the one hand, John is dealing with sins that are serious and grievous offenses before God, but they are not unto death. They don't require the physical death by way of punishment of the offender. And then on the other hand, the sin that would be unto death, that is, physical death. Now John points out in verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. In other words, he's saying um, all sin is serious, all sin is grievous, all sin is unrighteousness, all sin is lawlessness, but there are some sins that are more grievous than others, some sins, as our shorter catechism tells us, Question 83, in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. We sometimes like to level all sins. All sins deserve the judgment of God, but some sins are more heinous in the sight of God than others. In and of themselves, offenses toward God are more heinous than offenses toward you. And also by reason of several aggravations. If I hate you, that is a violation of the sixth commandment, I'm sinning. But if I murder you, there are aggravations associated with that sin which are not associated with hatred. If I murder you, and you are a wife and a mother, now there is a husband without companionship, and there are children without maternal care. Aggravations which are not associated with hatred. 
So, some sins more grievous than others, some unto death, some not unto death, whatever your interpretation might be, but all sins are unrighteousness. So you have these three options. I encourage you to give them all due consideration. I will tip my hat that I'm inclined to favor the last for these reasons, because he speaks of sin which is not unto death, but all sin is unto spiritual death, so he perhaps has physical death in view. That seems to make some sense to me. And then it is possible, I think, for a man to be a Christian and yet in some situation create, commit some horrible sin which would forfeit his life and yet be repentant of that and thus his life spiritually preserved but yet he forfeits his life physically because of the nature of his sin. However, it would be a bit strange that John would suddenly be addressing a matter concerning physical life in these verses when all along it has been his subject to address spiritual and eternal life. So perhaps it is apostasy or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the one sin that Jesus said cannot be forgiven. In any case, He does not prohibit us to pray, but says you should not pray. You're not forbidden to pray, but rather he says, I do not say that he should make request for this sin. So perhaps in any case you might err on the side of compassion and mercy and continue to pray anyhow and hope for God's grace and mercy and repentance and preservation of light. One commentator remarks, but since we can never be sure, or I can never be absolutely certain that when I'm watching someone sin, that he's sinning a sin that is unto death, unless it is the the latter case, capital offenses, in the other case, I could never be absolutely certain what the nature of your sin is. Are you apostate? Are you... Have you blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? Usually those who are most concerned that they might have done that are the ones who have not done it, because if they were concerned that they had done it, they wouldn't have done it, because those who have done it wouldn't be concerned about whether they've done it or not. So this commentator says, since we can never be sure, we should always keep on praying. So long as a man is capable of repentance... He has not sinned unto death. So this is the great benefit, the great blessing that we share together as a body of believers of having eternal life, of being brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only can we pray to our Heavenly Father and know that He hears us and that He will also answer our prayers, but also that we can enter into each other's lives, that we can have an impact upon each other's spiritual well-being, that we can support and encourage one another by simply praying for one another and thus promote and preserve the life 
that God Himself has given to us through His blessed and eternal Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gift of eternal life and for the privilege of intercessory prayer. Thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen.